This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, I'm Alan Davis. Uh, welcome to Seven Pillars, uh, another edition of Seven Pillars, uh, where we take a special guest and take them on a journey through the most important events or places or cultural items of their lives. And our guest for this edition is the brilliant ex-Chelsea and Scotland player and several other clubs too, which I'm sure we'll get to. Pat Nevin, how are you, Pat? I'm absolutely fantastic, Alan. And how are you? I'm pretty good. It's nice to hear your familiar voice, familiar from the radio, of course. Yeah, there's usually a bit of five lives and commentaries, which have not stopped during the last nine months or however long it has been during the lockdown. But uh, no, it's good to hear you feeling chipper as well. I've left that whole four sentences before mentioning Arsenal are struggling. (laughs) (laughs) For for those not so familiar with the world of football, I don't know who that is. I support Arsenal and Pat played for Chelsea. In fact, in recent years, the rivalry between those two clubs has become more and more intense as Chelsea have become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But it was always there as a London derby. But I do remember you coming down from Scotland. You really came pretty rapidly, didn't you? you? You were playing for Clyde. And then as a young player, you got quite a bit of recognition playing for Scottish youth teams, didn't you? What happened when you came to London? No, it was just weird because, you know, come to London just as a skinny, scrawny kid. The brilliant thing is Charlie Nicholas came the same week and he went to Arsenal in this unbelievable blaze of glory. And I kind of quietly turned up at Chelsea with nobody noticing. And it was great to do that. But it went kind of well right from the start. And I was only 19 and managed to get player of the year first year at Chelsea, which surprised everyone and nobody more than me completely. <laughs> so it all went sort of swimmingly well very, very early. And the general consideration, I, I wanted to finish the degree I was doing. I was two years into a degree. Oh, were you? What were you studying? Rather boringly, um, BA Com. So that's economics, accounts, business laws, things like that. Something that you get you a job, you know. Yeah. So I went into the arts, but basically I wanted a job. So that's the degree I was doing. So I took a two-year sabbatical to go down to Chelsea. And weird thing is I never went back. Although they came and gave me a doctorate afterwards. Did they? They're giving you an honorary degree. Yeah, which is great for one reason and one reason alone. Because for the last seven years, weekly, I have brought it up with one individual and wound this individual up, i.e. my daughter, who's been fitting <laughs> to be a doctor for seven years. <laughs> I'm going, well, I'm a doctor, you know. <laughs> oh, I bet she loves that, Joe. Uh, she got seriously fed up with that. But uh, anyway, she's a real doctor now. So there you came down from Clyde, a teenager, but with half an eye on a white-collar career behind a desk. But when you turned up, I remember seeing you play. I went to Selhurst Park. I mean, I was a big Arsenal fan, but when Chelsea were in the second division, they were coming up with a real momentum. Kerry Dixon was a centre forward. And you were, unlike many footballers in the 80s, you were slight and nimble and fleet of foot and somehow avoided life-threatening tackles to pick your way through to the very top of the English game. Were you ever terrified when you were on the pitch or did Vinnie Jones look out for you? No, well, Vinnie Jones was just after my time, but uh, we, had, we had a few hard Yeah, David Speedy looked out for you, I bet. If only Speedy <laughs> and I just didn't get on at all. We were complete and utter opposites, but a great understanding on the pitch. But uh-huh. to be fair, yeah, my teammates kind of, to some degree did, but, you know, sometimes in a kind of slim frame and a kind of, kind of slightly fey look that I had, I was probably a wee bit harder than people thought. And, you know, I'd been a distance runner, you know, I'd always played older age groups and I saw my kind of slightness and my height because I'm five foot six as an advantage. And most people didn't because you'd have 
lower centre of gravity and turning circle and things like that. So I can never admit, well, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say I was never fearful because I can't remember it and I know I never was because when you're fearful in a game of football, you've lost already. So I kind of like winding these big brutes up, really. And an odd thing is, you remember, Alan, because you're a little bit younger than me, but you obviously know your football. And I hadn't figured this out until recently, and it was told to me by somebody, that all the left-backs were psychopaths. <laughs> all the right-backs were normal guys. And I hadn't figured out. I'd played all those years. And it's true. When you think about it, the Julian Dex as uh, Pearson. I mean, West Ham did a real line on cycle fullbacks. <laughs> it was Pat Man and Howard. It was just even Nigel. Nigel wouldn't have been kicked a bit. Like, whereas all the other side were all these nice guys like Gary Stevens and things like that. You know? <laughs> I was obviously playing in the wrong side. Well, it. nowadays, of course, you'd be on the left-hand side of a front three cutting in on your right foot, wouldn't you? Football's all different now. Well, fair enough, it would be far better for me now. Before I signed for Chelsea, I'd never played in the wing, so I had to learn this as I was going along because I was like a 10 before that. Well, you remember the old days of football in England? A 10? That's the cheat. We can't have one of them. <laughs> That's the one with the long hair who smokes. Exactly. Well, but also in your day, the pitches were terrible and it was harder to get booked and it was a very different game. The ball was coming out of the air a lot of the time. Well, that's the bit that got me. I couldn't understand why they spent their time lashing it this long way. But it was a very English thing, much less Scottish. And certainly the rest of the world wasn't like it. And I remember England, without the boring football history lesson, there was a guy called Hughes who brought this idea of position of maximum opportunity, which basically meant lump it into the box, get it in the mixer from anywhere. And it really mm. was at the base. Remember, you had the England manager who was brought up in that at Watford, you know? Yes, Graham Taylor. So, you know, it was part of the idea. But having said that, recently I've had pause to thought for that. Because I don't know if you remember, Alan, if any of the listeners can remember, there was a game a couple of years back. Spurs, yes, I have to mention them. Spurs were playing against Man City. It was three or four years ago when City mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. And I think it was at Wembley, yeah, because Spurs were playing at Wembley. And the game was the day after an NFL, American football game had been played. So the pitch was actually churned up. So I thought, oh, yeah, can these guys actually play in the pitches that we played on? This will be interesting. They couldn't. They no. absolutely, De Bruyne couldn't. David Silva, my kind of current hero. They couldn't do it. They couldn't play that style of football. So that actually made me feel really good. <laughs> How do we manage it? Well, it's been interesting with all the memories of Diego Maradona and talk about, is he the greatest, is Messi better? And one of the reasons why it's so hard to compare is because he had to do it on those muddy pitches. Different boots, different ball, different rules, different pitch, and all of them much harder than the kind of billiard green. Nowadays, if you touch a player and he screams and falls over, you get the free kick. Do you know that's the worst thing about going to games at the moment? All these games I've been to in the last nine months, you can hear the squealing, and it is squealing. It's not screaming, it's not crying, it is squealing. And it drives me nuts. And it was never the case. Absolutely not. But now you hear it echoing around the stadiums. It's absolutely vile. And of course, the vast majority of players have not been touched. It's a load of nonsense. But funny you mentioned Maradona. I mean, I was fortunate to play against him, which is amazing to play against him. But he's the only player I've ever known. And I mean ever. Every single player I've ever watched or seen and played against that actually used the bobbles on the ground. Really? Actually react quick enough to the bobbles. People often ask you who was the greatest, who is the greatest, all that sort of stuff. And it's hard to compare. But probably the most skillful I've ever seen is Maradona. You know, this is for somebody who loves Messi, clearly. But, you know, wow, what he could do was incredible. He just approached the sport in a totally different way, didn't he? So it didn't look like the game as you knew it. The other player in recent memory who did it was Zidane, who had an entirely different way of approaching, running with the ball, carrying the ball, receiving the ball how he struck the ball. So someone comes along every now and then who's so unorthodox. Yeah. I, I kind of partially hate them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was very different from men, but I don't know if it was the technique that was different. Other things, my attitude towards the actual game itself was a wee bit different from the norm. But you were terrifically skillful. I mean, I do remember seeing you play many times and you really had the most fantastic balance and touch on the ball. You could go one way or the other, jink around, you'd go under people's armpits almost. They couldn't catch you. I remember watching you once before a game, just playing with the ball boys and two or three ball boys trying to get the ball off you. They'd come towards you and you'd go round them. And 
you were entertaining one corner of the stadium just by playing around with the ball boys. It really like the pitch was a school playground to you or something. Yeah, it kind of was. I loved the joy of it. I mean, that's why I played. But oddly, I was loving having fun with the ball boys. They're just playing a wee game of football, you know, an hour before the game. Many fans over the years for Chelsea, you know, when I meet them, they say, we used to turn up early for an hour to watch you doing the skill stuff and playing with the kids. But, you know, because I did a lot of keep up stuff and weird stuff. It wasn't necessarily to show off. Yeah, there's a bit of entertainment there. That's fine. But it was purely to get my touch right. And I thought the touch was important. And I couldn't get that idea of all oh, these players would run out before the game. And you close your eyes and think of Terry Butcher or Tony Adams running out, you know, very, very stiff, arm round the ball kind of thing. You know, I'm thinking, I just want to cruise out there and be comfortable and relax. You know, that's what good touch will give you. If you're all stiffing up tight, it'll just bounce off you. It's nothing more complicated than that sometimes. But it was really nice for the period there. But you need the right manager the right coach. And it's like any creative industry, and I do call it a creative industry. You need the right people behind you to be believing in you. And I was lucky for a wee period of time. At every club I was at, for a period of time, I had basically creative license. And when I had that, I did well. When I had less creative license, I did less well. Did you do anything else apart from, I mean, did you ever do any dance? Did you do yoga? Or was it all really just a natural flexibility and balance that you had? Uh, no, I just, I didn't lose 10,000 hours very early on. You know, I was a distance runner, which I kept very quiet because I didn't want anyone to know that I didn't get tired. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept it really quiet. Also, here's a shocker, but it doesn't get you. So ballet or yoga, No. My dad taught me how to box. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, I wondered if there was something. So it was a yeah. concentrating on the footwork. Did you do lots of skipping and that sort of Everything, thing? Everything, every side of it. But that was his sport. He'd been a boxer. So, you know, in the Navy kind of thing, he was pretty decent, apparently. But what boxing teaches you is something else. It's like when you go and prepare for it, you don't underprepare. That's very, very dangerous. And <laughs> we kind of had that kind of very stoical attitude towards it. And it was an interesting dichotomy for being incredibly dedicated to the actual art and the craft of it, also being quite relaxed whether it actually worked or not, whether, you know, you had a career or not. I was never really bold one way or the other. So it's a kind of unusual outlook and was certainly frowned upon at the time, but I stuck by it. You know, I'm just doing it for the fun. I do remember once, I think it was in Shoot magazine or maybe in Match Weekly magazine, you were the featured player in the kind of Q&A they used to do. And it would be, you know, what's your most difficult opponent? What's your favourite meal and this sort of thing? And they said, how do you prepare for the game? And you said, I phone a taxi, I wait for the taxi, <laughs> I get in the taxi, <laughs> I go to Stamford Bridge. <laughs> Almost certainly bus number 22 at Battle on King's Road. <laughs> then, I look, then I turn right at whatever. You couldn't take those things seriously. I mean, I wasn't reading that sort of stuff. I was very serious when I was younger with my reading, you know, like I'd been reading existentialist novels, you know, things like that. So to do that sort of thing was, I'm not saying it was beneath me, but I wanted to have a laugh. And I was also reaching out to the people that, you know, were football fans and I don't think they were catered for, you know, and people who were into music, people who loved theatre or whatever, people who had other interests. You had a sense of humour who were Python-esque, you know, can we talk to them, please, as opposed to these very simplistic, what's your favourite food, uh, steak and chips kind of stuff? I mean, really? Where's the entertainment in that? In the end, I just said to him, do you mind if I just interviewed myself? And I did the interview myself, against myself. And oh, that's interesting. Myself, so just made it more interesting for people, hopefully people who read. Well, it did. And it was a glimpse of humour, which is a rare thing. In the, in those <laughs> I, was, I was a big fan of the comedy circuit at the time. Now, I know I'm talking to someone who knows their stuff in this area. Um, <laughs> but I used to go up to Edinburgh. So we played a game on Saturday. And I was going to a lot of gags and a lot of various things. But I'd go up to Edinburgh for the festival and see a lot of comedy up there. I mean, I remember somebody said there was a guy called Jerry Sedovitz playing. And I'd never heard of Jerry. Oh, really? You want to see Jerry? On his first ever tour. And his first line was, well, I can't repeat it, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did it have the C word in it? Oh, yes. Yeah, they told, they told <laughs> There's a Perry judge here, and hand goes up, <laughs> basically marched them out, told them to F off. Jerry's <laughs> <laughs> a genius, genius comedian. I did other things as well, but I was mad about the comedy scene. There's a guy called, did you ever come across Bing Hitler? Yes, yes, Bing Hitler, yes, that rings a bell. Right, okay. But <laughs> I got to know Bing Hitler, right? Anyway, Bing wasn't getting ahead at all, and he said to me, I don't know for this, I'm going to go and move to America and break America. And knowing one of your mates from Glasgow says that, you think, ah, very good, I'll see you in a month. He did. How good for him. 
Do you know what his name is? <laughs> no, go on. But he got his own show. Oh, no, it wasn't Craig, was it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, do you know that's funny? I knew the name being Hitler, and of course I knew Craig, but I'd never put the two together, or if I did, I'd long forgotten it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Craig Ferguson. What a brilliant story it is, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Yes, that's right. He was being Hitler. You're going back 35 years here. Absolutely. I, mean, I love my comedy. And I did go to see it a lot. And one of my friends I met up there, see, I've never had an agent. And I just didn't want an agent. You know, I've studied a little bit. And basically, I'm not about money. I'm just about, you know, pay me. Oh, that's fine. Thank you. I'll take that. That'll do. And that's basically my attitude towards it all. But I met this agent up there. And she was the agent for a lot of the top comedy people. And... We just became great friends. So we were great friends basically all our lives, right? And then six months ago, I kind of thought, oh, actually, I need an agent. I'm 57 now. <laughs> so I had to ask her, do you mind doing that? And she went, okay, then. So it's really weird, but she had Dave Allen and Victoria Wood and all the rest of it. So oh, she wow, yeah. serious names, you know? Oh, well, that's great. Well, you know, it's funny that you were going up to the festival and for a lot of the comedians, I remember going with Kevin Day once to Easter Road to see Hibs. We'd be going to see Hibs and Hearts or maybe going over to Glasgow occasionally to see one of the big two over there. <laughs> so there's a kind of a swap over going on. And then a lot of the comedians would get together and have a game of football. I can't, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Stenhouse Muir. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there's definitely a crossover. Oh, yeah, there is. But look, Pat, let's crack on. Let's get yeah. into your seven pillars because you've chosen some very interesting things from different parts of your life. And I'm going to just go through them the way they've been sent to me. So that means starting with the film that you've chosen. Which film did you go with? Right. First of all, I'm going to tell which one I was going to go with because I was in a film. I was in a movie. And if you've seen it, it's good. Because uh, have you ever seen So I Married an Axe Murderer? Mike Myers movie. No, I don't think I have. Just go and watch it, right? Trust me. Trust me. It's like an art house version of a Mike Myers movie. It's a cracker. Anyway, I'm in the background scoring a goal, so I was really pleased about it. It's a cracker movie. It really is. But no, I'm not going to go for that. My, f- I would probably have to be my favourite film. With the obvious caveat, apart from Monty Python, is Life of Brian. With the obvious caveat, I think that is the best film ever made. But Lost in Translation was an amazing film by Sofia Coppola. So, again, if you haven't seen it, I would urge anyone to see it. And I don't know if you'd get as much joy out of it as you get as I did out of it, because for any film in my entire life, and possibly for any artwork in my entire life, I've never had someone crawl into my head and make a movie of my head inside. And that, honestly, for big parts of it, felt like what it was. Because of the life I was living at the time, because of the tone of the film, the music of the film, the feel of the film, what he, Bill Murray, who was brilliant in it, it was doing, it was so, so close to the feeling of what my life was like. It was very, very weird. And I couldn't believe it. The scene at the end where he walks away, uh, Jesus and Mary Chain track comes on, and I'm looking around me going, is this a wind-up? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> well, for those who haven't seen the film, Lost in Translation takes place in Tokyo. Bill Murray plays kind of ageing slightly past his best film star, and he's taken out to Tokyo to promote whiskey, and he's put in a hotel... Things aren't going great with his wife at home. And he's in a hotel for a few days, really bored. He can't understand what anyone says. Everyone just speaks Japanese at him. But also in the hotel is Scarlett Johansson. And Scarlett Johansson in the film plays a 21-year-old girl. Though I think she was 18 at the time. She did her first big film. And her husband's a photographer and he's out taking pictures all day. So she's also in the hotel. And they start knocking around together. They really, they start falling in love, don't they? But there's such an age gap and they're both married. It never gets further than just hanging around and talking to one another. And somehow out of that, Sophia Coppola creates this very engaging, immersive world where you feel, as they do, that time is confusing because they're jet-lagged, they're up late at night, they can't sleep, they don't know what to eat, they haven't got the friends that they meet, half of them are Japanese, and they find each other. For relaxing times, make it Suntory time. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like you said more than that. You're a movie star. Yes, I should be doing movies. What are you doing? My husband's a photographer, so he's here working. He wasn't doing anything, so I came along. What do you do? I'm not sure yet, actually. 
What are you doing here? Getting paid $2 million to endorse a whiskey. The good news is the whiskey works. Can you keep a secret? I'm trying to organize a prison break. <laughs> We'd have to first get out of this bar, then the city, and then the country. Are you in or are you out? I'm in. How are you? I'm Bob. Bob. You're probably just uh, having a midlife crisis. Did you buy a Porsche yet? You know, I was thinking about buying a Porsche. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to be. You'll figure that out. The more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. You really are having a midlife crisis, huh? Uh-huh. And you've been there, haven't you? You've travelled the world. That's what it feels like. I do know that feeling of being in a hotel room and not really being sure if you even want to leave the hotel room or not. You feel like, I should be going outside and doing something, but I just, what day is it? What time is it? Where am I? Did you know? really feel like that because you were getting recognised where you went or was it because you were often away from home? What was the thing that chimed with you? Oddly enough, it wasn't the part, because my wife and I, we've been very happily married for a million years, right? It wasn't even the scarlet side of it. It was just the feeling of travelling on your own, seeing the stupidity of it, seeing ridiculousness of minor celebrity, trying to find meaning and substance in a part of the world where you cannot connect. I find it very, very difficult to connect. And I spent large parts of my life after I played football just travelling the world. And it's brilliant. I love it. Travelling is my favourite thing. But now and again, and by the way, Tokyo's the only setting for that, the perfect setting, because it is the most otherworldly place on the planet that I've ever been to because they make almost no concession for, you know, Westernism. Well, they didn't back then when I was there. I found China easier than Japan and Tokyo. So we've got all those things all going to, and questioning himself, what Bill Murray was doing, why am I doing this? Why am I here? Is this stupid? I'm selling my soul, doing something I shouldn't be doing. I should be back at home with my wife. What I should and it could be completely indulgent, that. It could be totally, and it sounds terribly self-indulgent, that whole concept. But it's done with such a love for feeling. And she explains it, I think, through the music that's used, that if you understand that kind of shoegazy, kind of airy wish you feel when you're, again, had a few drinks, or you've certainly been a bit jet-lagged, and you're out on a different planet, really, how you react and how you react to everyone around you. You then eventually start asking yourself big questions about your life. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is also a film, isn't it, about really profound loneliness because he's there for a few days. He's been paid $2 million. So you'd be hard pushed to find anyone if you said, I'm going to Tokyo for a few days. I'm getting $2 million for about three hours' work. Who isn't going to say you are a jammy so-and-so? But actually, he's there. And the real reality of you saying of minor celebrity and loneliness and boredom and the meaninglessness of wealth and isolation. She goes really deep with him, doesn't it? This was the only time he ever got an Academy Award nomination. The script won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay, even though it appeared to be largely improvised by Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. And they didn't see much. <laughs> no, but there's something to create such an engrossing... I watched it last night. I watched it when it came out. I hadn't seen it for 17 years or whatever. I watched it last night. It's such an engrossing 
mysterious. You do feel a little spark of joy inside you. When they see one another across a room and they smile at each other, you know that feeling of there's a person in the room that I can talk to. Everybody else might as well be stuffed dummies. I, I don't know how she drinks it all. I mean, I've been, in years gone past, I was big into, you know, Kurosawa movies and all that, the really heavy stuff. And then eventually you thought, actually, I just want to fall into a movie. I just want to and be absolutely engrossed in it and encapsulated by it and covered like a massive kind of foggy blanket by it. And it kind of feels a little bit like that. There are moments in it as well, which are, everyone that I talk to always has a different moment, right? So you can give me your moment in a minute. Mine's is weird. It just doesn't fit, right? There's a moment where he walks out in the golf club and he puts the tea down, Mount Fuji's in the background, and he takes a drive. Yes, beautiful shot. Mm. Great shot. As in every way, beautiful shot, right? So yeah, drive. it's... Beautiful shot in the background. It's brilliantly done. But he doesn't say a word. He walks into shot, hits the ball, picks it up, walks out of shot, right? So why is that important? Because he had no one to share that beautiful moment with. A a word would have ruined it. If he just said, yeah, or something, it would have wrecked the moment. And there are so many beautiful moments like that, you think, I have no idea why you put that in there. But it was genius. Yes, and it was amazing that actually, wasn't it? There was a bit earlier in the film where he's at the bar in the hotel where he keeps going to, and there's two young American guys in there who recognize him, and you can hear them out of shot talking about him. And he starts to try and get away, you know, he starts to, they want to speak to him. He hasn't got anyone to talk to, but there's no possibility of them just having a chat as fellow travelers kind of thing, because everything is skewed by his celebrity. Again, you've been there. It's colleagues that come up and you think there are certain colleagues, inverted commas, who you would love having a chat with, and it's great. But there are certain ones you just think, no, you're just doing this so you can tell your mates, like, and it's tiresome. But I loved it. And then I've mentioned the music, by the way, but, you know, Death in Vegas, the Tommy stuff, Tellier stuff, but I'm a fanatic of My Bloody Valentine. And, you know, he actually did the music for it. I know there's a My Bloody Valentine track in there as well, but it was absolutely... What possesses you to think, and it's because Sophia has got this really interesting taste in music, or different taste in music from what is normal for cinema goes, but every single piece of music that's in that film, I owned before the film came out. That's amazing. It's a great soundtrack. I mean, you can fire it up on Spotify or whatever your streaming service of choice is. It's a brilliant soundtrack. I dearly, dearly love that movie. To be honest, the amount of people that I've suggested it to who really didn't like it, it's just every now and again, most people would actually love it, right? And if you're a cinephile, you will probably love it anyway. But some people hate it with a passion. It's almost a gauge of people. <laughs> it's not whether I like them or not, but it's a funny kind of gauge. Yes, I know what you mean. And you kind of got to be in the right place, I think. Yeah. You've got to accept that it's going to work on you in a slightly deeper level than just... That's what's funny about those two guys who talked to him at the beginning because they say, oh, that car chase scene was amazing. <laughs> and you know that Sophia's not putting a car chase scene yeah. in this film. <laughs> that, so it kind of sets up within itself that this is a film about loneliness. It's going to meander towards something that is never going to come. And it's about love and separation. And it is a wonderful film and it's a really great choice. I think it's so impressive that she was such a young filmmaker, a new filmmaker, and, and created something that really does stay with you, I think. Yeah, it's one of those ones where, Ray, I'm following everything you do <laughs> And she has said good stuff, but still my favourite. So that's Lost in Translation. That's a great choice. Thanks for that one, Pat. We'll take your book next, your choice. So we ask for people that it might be a favourite writer or a particular page of a book or a whole book or a poem. And you come to us with the Jeeves and Wooster Literary Canon, the works of P.G. Woodhouse. When did you first get into uh, P.G. Woodhouse? Well, first you'll notice I don't mention a single book. <laughs> no. And I was quite late, actually, on Woodhouse. I mean, probably mid-20s, late-20s, before I really discovered it. I'd spent so much in my young life. I'd studied English to A-level, so I was into kind of really heavy stuff. Then I got really into a lot of French and German and Russian stuff. So, you know, you kind of have to do that when you're young, when you're a bit earnest and a bit austere. So I went through all that stuff. And then for late reading, I'd do the new journalists, you know, people like Tom Wolfe, et cetera. But then after a while, you start reading other stuff. And I started reading a little bit of Woodhouse. And it takes a wee while. And then you realise five pages in, actually, I'm laughing in every single page here. And he is using language better than anyone I've ever read, ever. It's a fairly good argument for Shakespeare, but he doesn't get as many laughs. (laughs) No, he doesn't get a laugh a page, that's for sure. Not on purpose, anyway. 
the classic one was Rowan Atkinson. I can remember saying, if uh, Shakespeare wanted it to be a comedy, he would have written a joke in it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I love, and then more of, in particular when I started writing, I mean, been writing since I was, I mean, I was writing for the NME when I was under an assumed name when I was at Chelsea. Oh, were you? That's yeah. And my flatmate was writing for the NME at the time as well. So I had this other demi mode that I was living in anyway with music. So I'd started writing really early, early 20s. And then I had a column for the Chelsea newspaper. And they asked me if I'd write it. And I went, yeah, it came as a bit of a shock when I wrote about music, not football. I don't think they were expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> but when you start writing, whatever level of writing you're doing, I don't think it's important. And then you see a master, like Jeeves and Worcester stuff in Woodhouse. It is absolutely extraordinary. And the one thing, I know you worked with Stephen Fry for such a long time, and honestly, he can remember a lot of the quotes, can't he? Because he's a genius. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, he's absorbed all. And of course, he was in a television adaptation as well of Jeeves and Worcester, so he's steeped in it. <laughs> he was steeped in it beforehand anyway. He'd written yes. the house as a kid. I wish I would have done, but I wasn't quite old enough. But every single line's great. And there's a moment, just one tiny wee line, in the book it said, Jeeves, shied like a startled mustang <laughs> and the way that stephen played that was just perfect the use of language and the use of words and every now and again you know it in your business as well every now and again you come up with a phrase and you think ah oh, that's actually quite good i don't get it very often by the way <laughs> in your business you need to do it all the time i'm absolutely besotted by people who can use language in that way and there have been so many brilliant ones but for me he's still the master and i think it's perhaps because it appears so easy and straightforward they just trip along they're so easy to read but that's part of the great skill i'm a big fan of the audio books yeah. read by martin jarvis they're really really very funny and you, sometimes you can see the prank or the trick or the twist coming but the way he executes everything <laughs> is so funny is pg woodhouse big in glasgow this is it strikes me as once again as you reaching outside the area that you grew up in perhaps by this point, right, okay, here goes all the street cred right now. Um, <laughs> I was living in Kensington, right, <laughs> in London. You were living in Kensington and considering getting a butler. Um, I had one, in a way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, were you Jeeves or were you Bertie Wooster? Uh, Bertie, but sadly, I was definitely Bertie. Um, no, actually, it was really weird. I shouldn't be telling you this. I'm going to tell you because I have to tell the truth. So I drove a little green sports car as well, an MGBGT, right? Nice, lovely. Kensington. And my flatmate, we'd been doing degrees together, and he'd come down to London, and he needed somewhere to stay. So I said, well, I've got an extra bedroom. You stay in there, mate. And he stayed there. Now, from Glasgow and myself, however, he had a bit of the Jeeves about him. And the bit of the Jeeves about him was he shimmered the way Jeeves shimmered. So if you sit down and your friend's around and you're having a glass of wine or something like that, you put it down, you turn to your friend, you turn back, the glass of wine had been taken away, changed for another glass and replaced and topped up without you noticing. <laughs> yes, this is a Jeeves at work. Always one step ahead. And it was purely like that and unbelievably neat and tidy, my flatmate. He became my best man at my wedding as well, Peter. So there was a kind of Jeeves and Worcester thing going on. We didn't talk like that, obviously. But maybe there was somewhere. That's where the little racing green sports car came in. He wasn't laying your outfit out for you in the morning. No, not quite. No, not. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful choice, Pat. I mean, I'm a big P.G. Woodhouse fan, all comic writing, of course. But I must say, it's not what I expected from the indie kid <laughs> from Glasgow. So it's very pleasing that Jeeves and Wooster's been given a... That's one of the things in my entire life, doing my job. And, you know, doing my job, oh, you're a footballer. And you often get two reactions. Oh, my goodness, you're a footballer, with disdain. Or, oh, you're a footballer. And both of those are hated equally. Both of those are hated equally. And you just want to be taken for who you are, you know. And there's no reason why somebody from the East End of Glasgow and Easter House shouldn't like Worcester. And there's a big background to that, and particularly in the left and, you know, socialist history of your autodidacts who would learn about themselves and learn about other people and learn about the world around literature. And where I come from, that's perfectly normal. Oh God, I've got to tell you this really quickly. I was playing for Tranmere at mid to end of my career and the referee was getting walls 10 yards back and I'm on the side of the wall, but around a little bit and the referee said, get back, get back. And I said, no, no, I'm back, I'm 10 yards. He said, no, no, get back with them. I said, no, no, we're equidistant. And everybody <laughs> stopped. <laughs> and they've all stopped and the referee stopped and went, 
Equidition hour. <laughs> you see the world I have to live in, mate. You have no idea. Yeah. Well, we are, I'm going to thank you again for bigging up Jeeves and Wooster, and you cannot fail to enjoy those. But I'm going to move you to something perhaps more at the heart of the Pat Nevin that I have known, which is your favourite performance. It's a gig you've picked out that you went to, one of hundreds of gigs you've been to in your life, a band that you first heard played, well, as many of us did, we heard bands for the first time played on the radio by John Peel. It's Camera Obscura, and you went to see them, and you drove from London to Glasgow to see them. And tell me about that night. What happened was, and to be honest, I'll have to give you the true story. It was only from the border, so it was only two and a half hours there and two and a half hours back. Right? So <laughs> only a five-hour round trip, right? I've been listening to the Peel Show, which was always my want anyway. I recorded it every night and listened to it. Um, I was very fortunate got to be good friends with John over the years. And they played this track by Camera Obscura. They were doing a session. And I just thought, after one song, this could be my next favourite band. In fact, I'm sure it is. Now, how you can tell that from one song? Because it was just so perfect, so beautiful, voice was perfect. So I phoned up the place the next day and said, look, in Glasgow, have you got any tickets left? And he said, oh, no, just turn up at one sell out. So I went all the way up to Brell in Glasgow and got there, and they wouldn't let me in. And I went, no, but I've driven, it's a five-hour round trip, mate. You told me it'd be okay. No, no, we can't let you in. The bouncer was not for having let me in. But this girl peeked around from behind the bouncer and said, something wrong and I went oh it's five hour round trip here and this guy said I'm not getting in and she said oh you're on the guest list and she gave me a wee wink and I went oh right great so I went in anyway she was the singer and the songwriter and she is the centre of camera obscura it was Tracy Ann and I didn't know oh really that's brilliant (laughs) and I knew nothing about the band other than I'd just heard them on Peeler the night before and they played that night and it was magical and I just knew that night oh my goodness they're very new. She is a genius songwriter. She has got the most beautiful voice. She's like, I would compare to Benny and Bjorn, a songwriter. You know, I'm not seriously high praise. I mean, I'm supposed to be an indie kid, but a good songwriter is a good songwriter. And she writes the most beautiful, beautiful songs. And it was amazing. We became friends after that, as is often the case when you're following little bands. And some of the special nights, going to see them for the next 10 years. Now, that was only 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So it wasn't when I was playing football this was happening. But the fact that I used to have that feeling when I first went to see my first bands that I loved. But I mm-hmm. still have that feeling now when I find a new band. I mean, we all love music. But now and again, there's a band that's just kind of you, if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean, and I do know that feeling of looking for new music or looking for something new, partly because I don't know how you feel, but a lot of the records I listened to when I was younger, my teens or my 20s, I can't really put them on now. They take me to a place from so far ago that I'm not that person now, I'm not in that place anymore. I need something new, something that I can associate with now. It's a never-ending need for something new. I think there's an assumption that once you get in your 50s or whatever, that all you want is nostalgia, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. No, absolutely not. It doesn't have to be new. It's just new to me, Mm. as long as I've not heard it before. I think if, like you say, many of us, I mean, I listened to Peel my whole life. Now, basically, you wouldn't listen to John Peel unless you were looking for something new. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's yes. the concept. You can actually just wrap it up in that little sentence there. So Peely would always be looking for the next thing, the new thing. He had impeccable taste a lot of the time of seeing and hearing what was good and what was different and what was happening. Not even what was happening, because he didn't care about that. But what was artistically good and worthwhile. So that's always been an ingrained thing. But that's in any part of life and the arts, etc. Life should be like that. It should be a search. But music's something very special in my life because... If I had any passions, I mean, I mean football is great, but it's behind music and it always has been like. <laughs> so I wouldn't hide that. What I liked about, I always liked about John Peel, it sounds like you have a similar view. It's, it's very unpretentious and always looking for humour. Mm-hmm. And so often in music, you know, the followings of bands or sites of bands are trying to create an impression or put on a show or be something that they're not. And it's about being cool and having the right clothes and all the rest of it. But he never had any of that. He would take a box of cassettes, listen to them all. And if you found something, as you say, that was of artistic merit, had some nugget of quality or something special, that was what he seized on. Yeah. And the thing is, I remember the bands that I went to see that I'd heard them when people went to see them that I never got. And then five years later, they're my favourite band. You know, I can remember going to see The Fall when I was like 17 and going, really? 
What? <laughs> well, I remember that with the fall. Yeah. I know people have said to me since that Marquis Smith is a genius and all that. And I tried the fall a few times. It never came to me. Well, stuff. <laughs> I went to the Hex induction tour and absolutely straight over my head. And there have been bands like that, you know, but Peely seemed to see that in this one scratched little tape that's sent to him. You know, he seemed to see it. So that was one of the big parts of my life was getting new things, not just off of Peely, but friends, but generally, I remember the very last song I got before John died off of his show. And I remember going to buy it the day I bought it and having tears in my eyes when I was having to buy this track thinking, I will never, ever do this again. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Can you remember what it was? Yeah, it was Blindness by the Fall. (laughs) <laughs> oh really and the it's a very strange thing because we become good friends and i'd just been at his 65th birthday party a few weeks before and i wasn't going to go and then i the last minute i did this mad dash to an airport and flew down and got a drive out drive my cross all the way to east anglia where they lived had the brilliant night at the party drove back had to get the 5 a.m flight in the morning all that mad stuff that i'd never ever do and i didn't know why i did it but we lost him a couple of weeks later. So. Yeah, so thank God you did. Yeah. So I've never done anything like it before or since. I just don't know. I had to be there. I remember telling my wife, don't know why, I have to be there. It was very, very strange, but it was lovely. Yeah. It was a great influence, as you say. And there was no snobbishness. And of course, he was terribly shy. He was horrendously shy. And that was the thing. A lot of people who were too shy to speak to him didn't realise he was too shy to speak to anybody else. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that about him. It was unmissable radio. It was much harder in those days to find new music. And they had the rhythm powers, didn't they? They had David Kidd Jensen on before him. And that was where you got your new music. And as you say, recording that and listening to it back, that was really the only way to find stuff unless you could find pirate radio somewhere. You're right. And our friends, I was lucky when I was growing up in Glasgow, it was a really interesting cultural scene there. And then when you go to London, of course, it's London. Everyone does London. So that was, I'm not saying it's the only reason I sing for Chelsea. You know, yeah, <laughs> well, you were guaranteed to see every band that ever there was. It was up there, I can tell you. <laughs> well, that's a great story to hear one song on the radio played by John P. And I think I'm in for a five hour round trip to see this lot. And then the lead singer gets you in. That's a brilliant memory. There is a corollary to the story as well. You know, I was telling you about that last night we seen Peely. Uh, I met Peely at his 65th. Mm-hmm. Camera Obscura with a band playing his. his <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm standing there singing along every song with Tracy Ann and the guys. And it was just magical. It was really fantastic. All these things that are weirdly kind of link up. Yeah, they were connected. Well, I'm going to take you out of Glasgow now and far away. We ask our guests to come up with a food or a meal or a flavour or something that's been important to them. And you've picked your favourite meal from a back street in Singapore. Mm-hmm. What was it you had there? Clay pot prawns. I can still taste them now. I'm a fanatic <laughs> of hot food. After I stopped talking to you, I'm jumping in my car and I'm doing a one hour, 30-minute round trip to get a takeaway curry. Really? <laughs> I mean, I love Southeastern food that much. But my brother was living over in, in Singapore at the time. He was headmaster of an English-speaking school. There's this weird story where we got it wrong, right? I was the one that should have done the headmaster bit and he's the one that should have been the footballer. Oh, really? Somewhere there's a memo completely and utterly lost along the way and the wrong one got the wrong job. It's really funny because personality-wise, he'd be much better at being a footballer <laughs> So anyway, I was over in Singapore and I was actually at Chelsea at the time, but it looked like I might be leaving and a couple of clubs were trying to buy me, one of them being Celtic, who I was a fan of. But I wanted out of it. I wanted the clubs to set it out. And I went over and I spent a month in Singapore during the summer just to get away from everything. And the food over there was fantastic. And I love Hong Kong. My brother went to Hong Kong and I've spent time in Hong Kong as well, Bangkok, all those places. I just, I mentioned Tokyo earlier on. And that's one of the joys of life. I love, love, love traveling with such a passion. But this food that you get in street food, because I've got kind of constitution of a rat, so I can basically eat anything. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've got that, I can do these street foods. But some of the street foods, and real street foods, you know, I mean, London's so much better these days and so are some other cities where you can get cuisine from all over the world. And London is pretty special at the moment, I think, or has been up until recently. But, you know, when you actually get it in the right place, at the right time, in the right atmosphere. Yeah. But sometimes you get those street food places. I went to Vietnam. I don't know what was happening in your life at that time, but what was happening in my life when I was just about 40, 39, 40, was 
I wanted to get away completely and I went to Vietnam on my own and I found a guide up in the north who's going to take me trekking and he took me around for a couple of days and he found just one of these street side vendors with tiny plastic seats, disappeared, came back with a plate of the most delicious food I've ever tasted, cost about 40p, you know. And I know exactly what you mean. You can't quite believe the flavours that you're having. It's it's fresh and it's hot and it's spicy. And you're there. And you wish you could bottle it, you know. Yeah, it's really extraordinary how delicious that stuff is. And it helps if you're really hungry at the time as well. And also maybe it is because you're, you're in the mountain air, you're not polluted or something. There's some combination of factors. Alan, don't ruin the magic. Look, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> One of my girls used to say to me, I'm having feelings about this food that you're not supposed to have about food. <laughs> Take it no further than that. This is a family show. Oh, yeah. I went on a liverboard boat on Ha Long Bay in Vietnam mm-hmm. for two nights. It's the most beautiful place I've ever been to. All these limestone outcrops and mountains that are full of little inlets and caves and just total silence. It's really amazing. And then you get the most extraordinary food on the boat every day. And on that boat, I was the only English person there, but everybody spoke English. They were from all over the world. And so, you know, nobody knew who I was. And uh, it was just bliss. I know this feeling that I think you're describing of just taking a moment in time where you just wish that was perfect. Do you know that one of the fortunate things about, again, I'd never ever take it for a millisecond for granted. I really never have. When I'm there, I think this is amazing. And there was one occasion very recently in Brazil and we went to Manaus and Manaus is, you can't get there by road. You can only get there by, you know, up the Amazon or by plane. So it's a city in the middle of the, the Amazon, right? And we went for dinner one night. There's people there doing, you know, whatever the dances, salsa or whatever. Right. And they're young people and they're stunningly good looking. They're doing it in the main square, but they're not doing it for the tourists. They're doing it because that's what they do, right? And it's beautifully warm. The air is fabulously heavy. The food is amazing. Like you've never tasted anything like it before. And I was walking away after dinner and you're so otherworldly. This is what I love, getting to the other world, like you're talking about Vietnam. And as we're walking away, Alistair Bruce Paul, who was one of the commentators I was with, said, do you know the amazing thing, Pat, is you're in the middle of a jungle in Brazil here. You'll not be recognised. And I said, well, I hadn't thought about it, but you're right, there's a real relaxation about not being recognised. And as I was saying, that guy walked by and went, hi, partner. I went, hi, how you doing? And then carried on. I went, what? <laughs> I was actually halfway through the sentence. <laughs> the point is, it's about what the atmosphere is too, isn't it? It's Yes, it's the food, but it's the atmosphere as well. It is. No, that's a great memory. But I'm going to take you forward now to the reason perhaps why you are still recognised all over the world, which was your brilliant football career. And there are lots of listeners perhaps who are not football fans or don't remember particularly football in the 80s. But you were such an exceptionally skillful player. But the memory that you've chosen, if we ask our guests to come up with a particular memory, and this is obviously a high point for you to something that stands out, and it's a goal you scored against Arsenal. Right. Okay, Partially, there's, there's the reason I'm talking to you. This is from September 1985. It's possible I was at the game, but my mind has chosen to forget it. The sad thing is there's no footage of the games. Very few games were actually filmed then. But in actual fact, there was quite a lot of hand because Charlie and Nicholas had came down. We were both Celtic boys club players. And I'd came down and went to Clyde. Oh, so you knew Charlie as a boy, both knew each other as boys growing up. He was a, a year or two older than me, but... We are acutely aware of each other, right? But he was big news. He was playing for Celtic, and I was playing for Clyde doing a degree, you know, roughing it. Total opposite. Charlie was nightclubs and, you know, Champagne Charlie. I want to see Joy Division. You know, it was so, so stupidly different. It's unbelievable. The idea of getting me near a flash Ponce nightclub is unthinkable, you know? So, yeah. Well, the funny thing is he came to London to play for Arsenal, which is a big coup for Arsenal because Liverpool and Manchester United wanted him. But the rumour was he wanted the nightclubs and the champagne and the bright lights of London. You came to London because all the indie bands played there. That seems to be the difference. See, I wanted to go to the ICA to see his Robbley Sorts played. I didn't <laughs> <laughs> so I, which I did and all that sort of stuff so I kind of had that kind of life and also culturally all things I love my ballet I love theatre all that sort of stuff so I had all that but even so there's something in it he wanted fame I hated the concept of fame I really despised it and I'm kind of scared of it right but I still wanted to kind of outdo him a bit now and again <laughs> and in that game I think he scored the opener 
and I got as a penalty for the equaliser, which I think Nigel Spanton scored. But then I scored with a diving header to win it. And there was this real kind of, a lot of papers mentioned it the next day, well, everyone's talking about Charlie, but what about this kid kind of thing? And it's not important. In the end, it was just to be mentioned. Oh, actually, you've noticed me now. It was really a lovely feeling. And of course, with Chelsea fans, you were very delicate at the start of the show. You said about the rivalry between Chelsea and Arsenal. Look, the rivalry was Arsenal sports, right? Okay, we can just own up to it now. <laughs> Chelsea would love to have been rivals with Arsenal's. <laughs> they were miles away. But for a wee period of time, we kind of got a wee bit closer. But it was, I never had that kind of feeling towards any club. I've never kind of got the hatred, but it's just not part of my makeup. My flatmate was a Spurs fan, and I used to go and watch Spurs on the shelf with him on a Wednesday night. I thought that was a perfectly normal thing to do. His girlfriend, Sophie Sparrow, she was a complete and utter gunner as Gunnar could be, right? But could not care less. And most of us are like that, aren't we? I think, actually, things are different then, you know, because in those days, it's certainly true to say, if you live in London, that your friends support all different clubs. And it's not like growing up in Newcastle where there's one club. And also, in those days, if you decided at 2 o'clock on a Saturday to go to a ground, you could just go down there and pay at the gate. And so it was much easier to go to other grounds, see other games... I remember going to Stamford Bridge to see him play Manchester United. And, but nowadays with games, it's so expensive. It's usually all ticket and it's a totally different experience. It's hard to explain to people now what it used to be like. There's good and there's bad points to it as well. And in the bad points, there's a lot of thuggery, a lot of hooligans around. But you could usually get out of the way of that if you wanted. They weren't really looking for people most of the time that were not looking for each other. But it was a problem, that, wasn't it? It was a problem because it was very widely reported and it was very damaging to football because lots of people simply wouldn't go. I mean, I think back to the terraces that I stood on when I was a teenager. I've got kids now who are 10, 9 and 5. I couldn't take them on there, you know. So at least now it's safer in that respect. If we're talking about various art forms, the one art form I have absolutely no time for at all, and it happened quite a lot, and there's been a lot of books written, a couple of movies, a couple of TV programmes about hooliganism in that period and glorifying it. I have absolutely no time for them. They may well be well written, and they may suggest a piece of society that was of interest to those people. But they're usually done by fat, balding, sad old men. By the way, that's as angry as I ever get. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I totally understand what you mean. You're absolutely right. There is quite a lot of terrible cinema glorifying criminal thuggery in the end. <laughs> One thing I've no time for, and it really annoys a lot of people who that was a big part of their life at the time. But from my position, you ruined our game. The people we wanted to come along weren't you. We wanted a lot of people to come along, and you stopped the people we wanted you stopped the game growing and being better than it was. So I had no time for that. I mean, I do like some of them when they write about other things. I mean, I like train spotting, for goodness sake. But there is a whole area of that where I cannot be bothered. I have no time for it. It was such anger. Because there was a lot of good people involved in football. There was a lot of great football fans. You were there. You didn't need to be a thug, but you were thrown in with them, weren't you? You were suggesting you were one of them. What you, what you needed to know was how to get out of it. You needed to have a sense of when it might happen. It's hard to explain now, but you get a feeling that we should go now. We should move from here or we should get out of here. You get a certain side of noise or vibe or feeling. A few of the certain types of faces appear and you think, oh, here we go. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Where were you? I grew up in Loughton in Essex, so on the end of the Central Line. So where I grew up, you were either Arsenal or Tottenham or West Ham. And it was a very much that was the split. And then many, many years later, when the Premier League had taken over and broadcast had taken over, suddenly the area was infiltrated by Manchester United and Chelsea supporters. Because <laughs> funnily enough, they were top of the Premier League. So... It's a bit of a shame. The idea when I was a kid that you'd support Manchester United or Liverpool was absolutely ridiculous. There's perfectly good clubs just down the road. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I can't talk about that. I did the unthinkable. I changed clubs who I supported. I supported one club all my young life up until I was my mid-30s and then changed. Who does that? Well, I would suggest to you that that's not possible. Yeah. My perfect excuse is, you remember you used to write the old music columns and if a band split up, they were always... You know, splitting up for musical reasons, right? Anyway, I changed clubs for musical reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so who do you support now? I was a Celtic supporter. I'm now a Hibs supporter. And my son's goes to with me now, or he goes himself now, actually, dumped me. He's fanatical about it and he loves the Hibs. But it's because of all the sectarianism that was involved in Glasgow. Now, I'm a Glaswegian. I love my city. But I didn't want my son and my family to 
just be dragged closer to that for whatever way. So I wasn't having it. And it really annoyed a lot of Celtic fans. I don't hate Celtic fans. And of course, they would argue that Rangers fans were the cause of it. But they have a thing in Glasgow, don't they, that they call the 90-minute bigot. The person will go along to the game and join in all those songs, some of which are fantastic songs, despite the objectionable lyrics at times. Join in that for the history and the tradition and the atmosphere and it being part of the stadium. But when they leave the ground, that's not how they think or feel. That's how I felt when I was young. That's exactly how I felt. I mean, I didn't sing songs, but I thought, no, no, it's, it's just daftness. Billy Connolly used to speak about it brilliantly. It's just daft. We're all good mates, really. That's it. I went to Ibrox for the first time a couple of years ago. I was filming in Glasgow and they were playing a European game against Rapid Vienna. And I'd always wanted to go to Ibrox. I've been to Celtic Park a couple of times. And what a night it was. It was so exciting. You know, they were. it was packed out. They won the game. They were qualifying for Europe. They were going on. All four sides of the ground were singing. Everything was bouncing. The atmosphere was really special. Whoever you support, there's nothing quite like that communal feeling, that noise, that sensation. I do miss that. I have to. I really miss it. By the way, have you been to a Celtic Rangers game? It's still on my bucket list, Pat. It's on my bucket list. You're going to have to take me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I will take you. I've been to Hibs Hearts game. One of my favourite YouTube clips, this is true, and you've probably seen it, maybe you were there, when Hibs won the Cup, the Scottish Cup, not that long ago, and the entire Hibs end sang all the verses and chorus of Sunshine on Leith, the Proclaimers song. Do you want the real story behind that? It was incredibly moving. (laughs) Go on, what's the real story? If not for me, you would never have heard it. Uh (laughs) That's a good line. Um, I was doing the TV that day for Mm BBC Scotland, and it was obvious Hibs were going to win this. And I said to him before, I said, look, when this happens, when they win it, and they start saying Sunshine Leaf, don't come to me. And I'm open top back, so I'm hearing everything through my ear. Producer said, no, no, we can't do that, because he didn't get the importance of Sunshine and Leaf. And if anyone's not seen it, you will once you watch it. So I'm doing it with, remember, Do You Donnelly? Do You Donnelly was the anchor. Yes, yes. So anyway, they've come to us at the end of the game, and we're talking about the game, and I hear the first strains of Sunshine and Leaf starting. And Doogie's halfway looking at me, and I've said to him, I'm refusing to speak. I've said to him before, we come on air, I will not speak to you while this is on. You've no one else to go to. You've no one else to talk to, basically. So he starts this question, and I can see in his eyes going, Nevin's not going to speak. He's just going to look at me. <laughs> and the producer's going, what, what, what? Eventually, Doogie took it in his own hands and went, actually, before we do that, let's go outside and see the Hibs fans and hear... And we just stayed with it. And it was TV gold. It was utter gold. It does make you kind of well up, doesn't it? It really does. You get goosebumps. It's fantastic, and it's really something for all of them there. It was a special moment, but I'm always, I'm always telling people, you've got to watch this clip. You've got to watch this. It's a great song, about it. It's a shame because uh, the lads weren't there. The Beat Brothers weren't there. Oh, were they not? Oh, God. They must have seen it, though, right? Yeah, they always, always go because they're fanatical hippies, absolutely fanatical hippies. Well, it's a great memory for you scoring a diving header against Arsenal. Congratulations. Uh, I'll, I'll make a decision as whether we edit that out of this final. <laughs> <laughs> but let's move on to your favourite album. You're a real muso. We've established everybody knows how much you love live music and accumulating albums, but you've been forced to, by us, pick one album out and you've gone for the Cocteau Twins, an album called Head Over Heels. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, most shows that I do, I choose a different one. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> I'm not lying to you, but there's a kind of set of about five, six, seven, eight who I'd always go back to. Today it happens to be Head Over Heels. Now, Cocktails were another band I found through Peel. Off of that album and a 12-inch single that came along with it, I think it was something like nine of them were in Peel's Festive 50, of the best 50 tracks of the year. I mean, no other band's ever done it. They were just so stupidly beautiful, every single track. Is that In reality, how many albums do you know? 
you absolutely love every single track. Not one more than the other. Just love them all exactly at the same level. And that's exactly how I felt like Head Over Heels and the EP Sunburst and Snowblind. Just these most beautiful tracks. Got to see them live at that time. And a strange thing happened during that Head Over Heels gig. But they did. I was in London seeing them. And after the first couple of songs, there was silence. Everyone just stood there, just staring. There was no massive applause. There was people were just too moved. I've never seen that anywhere else. And it must have lasted 10 seconds or something. And then the place erupted. But I've never seen it any other, be it theatre, be it dance, be it anywhere. And I'm sure it has happened in other places, but I've never been where people were so stunned by the singing, by the songs, by the pure quality music and the moment. Well, they create an overall sound, don't they? It feels really unique to them. You know when it's a Cocteau Twins album or track, they have this unique sound that it is sort of immersive and unusual and it's not really being done for you, is it? It's being done for them. It's being done for music. It's hard to describe. It doesn't feel like it's been made with any concern whether there's anyone listening or not. It feels like they've made it because they had to or something. Yeah, I certainly that's what Robin and Sir Liz kind of felt at the time. They've definitely were of that mind. And they also, they've played the mind, lots of albums after that. That was the second album, but lots of albums after that. And to a lot of people, you know, I know a lot of people don't like it. It's like everybody, it doesn't matter whether millions of people like it or not. It's what it means to you and how it makes you feel. Now, I don't have any concept of what is good or bad music. I really honestly don't think there is such a thing. It's just what you happen to like, what actually moves you. But the people who are moved by it, and to be fair, most of the people are moved with, I actually in love. It kind of helps. <laughs> it just kind of, it really helps. Especially it's kind of first love kind of thing. It just peers into your soul. And that's the soundtrack of love, as it were, or how I kind of see it. Eventually, it was another one of those things where I ended up and off around Europe, you know. I mean, you'll know this. Did you not have a show called this, the Tuesday Club or something? That's my uh, uh, podcast that I do about Arsenal, yeah. Yeah, the Tuesday. So that's a reference to... It's a reference to the old Arsenal Players Drinking Club. Exactly, right. So, <laughs> yes. so the Tuesday Club, on a Tuesday night, they would all go, or afternoon, I remember talking to a very good ginger-headed friend of mine who was part of that. <laughs> yes, yes, he was. <laughs> and he was telling us what it was like. And you say, what did you do? And I'm thinking, well, on a Tuesday, I remember once after training, because we trained at Heathrow, I'd get in the car, drive over to Heathrow, get on a plane, fly to Paris, get a train from there down to Bourges in the south of France, go to see the Cocteau Twins, get back up in the morning and get back in time for training on Thursday morning. So not quite the Tuesday club, really, really <laughs> quite different than what they were doing. And I can understand how stupid they were that they weren't doing what I was doing. Maybe in retrospect, I wouldn't change it for the world, but the life that I was living was so far away from the life that all the other footballers were living. But I didn't feel above them or better than them. I just had different interests. Yeah, and it sounded like you wanted to get out sometimes. Some of those clubs, you get a bit institutionalised and locked in and sounded like you needed a bit of space and freedom. I was just so much more an individual person doing my own thing. I really liked a lot of the guys and became friends we didn't hang out i never hung out with footballers all my mates were musicians or whatever comedy guys or you know whatever or road sweepers doesn't matter but i often say to people if you're listening to this podcast today anyone honestly think about it how many people at your work do you hang about with <laughs> in reality <laughs> it's not that much football's <laughs> your work you know you shouldn't have to hang about with them all the time I didn't think it was weird. I thought it was perfectly normal. I remember the Cocteau Twins quite well. They were, as you say, not to everyone's taste, but they had a really unique sound and they quite the accomplished musicians, weren't they? Made many, many albums over many, many years. If you've, you've not heard them before and you want an easy route in, I'll tell you, don't buy Head Over Heels. Buy Heaven or Las Vegas, okay? There you go. And that you should listen to. That's the one that's pure pop and beautiful. There's your entry point for the Cocteau Twins. Thanks for that, Pat. We're nearly at the end of our time together on Seven Pillars. We've just got one last thing to talk to you about, which we'll come to now, which is a place, a particular place in the world that is special for you. We've established you're a big traveller and you've been all over the place, but you spent some time in South Korea for the 2002 World Cup. And I was in heaven when I was in Korea. For some reason, I immediately felt at home, which I have, you've no right to feel at home halfway around the planet. However, I love the attitude. Now, it's partially because if you look at, you know, there's a big Buddhist background, you know, they're quite cool in that sort of way. I just think they're... Do you know when we are... We're the centre of the universe, aren't we? 
you know, because it's Britain and rear centre and rear centre of the map and everything, <laughs> you know. And then you travel a bit and you realise, oh, maybe not. And I look at the Koreans and I thought at the time, oh, you're so much more cultured than us. You are so much more sophisticated than us. I like your attitudes better than us. There's one memory, though. I mean, everywhere I travelled, I loved. And you're talking about food. There was once... We were in Busan, I think, and we were miles out of town, about 50 miles out of town. It was a night miles with John Murray, his commentator, and we had no food. And the place we were staying in, the chap said, oh, I have a restaurant. And he said, oh, yes, well, can we eat there? And he goes, yes. And he opened up his next room. <laughs> and he, this guy, honestly, he looked like, do you remember the Bond villain who was kind of Eastern, who threw the kind of hat that used to chop people's heads off. Oh, yes, yes, I do remember. Was he called Odd Job? Odd Job, right. He looked like him only twice the size, right? Right, okay. And then he was doing this delicate little cooking for us, and it was beautiful what he gave. And I just thought, nowhere else does this kind of happen. But there was one night, and I'm going to try and take you there, Alan, because I think you'd like it. So I was in Jeju Island. It was in the coast off of Korea. Now, Jeju Island, is it not spectacular? Is it... Is it uh... Dormant volcano, isn't it? Very beautiful place. Very Bond. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it looks like a Bond lair. Exactly. Bond movie place, right. We are staying in this five-star hotel at the top of a cliff. Now, I'm a big open-sea swimmer. I've always done that. It's one of my other passions. And it's over the best beach I've ever seen in my life with these roaring waves coming in. My only work in the three days that I'm there is at 8 o'clock one evening to walk oh, about half a mile in 80 degrees of heat. You know, just a nice temperature to watch Brazil playing against China. And they've got Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo. They play yeah. beautiful football in the most beautiful stadium with the most perfect people around. And I think I am absolutely, utterly in heaven here watching this. They had the best firework display I've ever seen in my life at the end of the game in this beautiful inky black sky. I actually could spend hours telling you how perfect a night this was. It was absolute perfection. But it just summed up what the Koreans were like. We understood the art of it. There's one little moment. I'm going to try and sum up Korean. Two little examples. I sat at a shopping centre watching the woman who was telling the traffic where to go. I sat and watched her for two hours. That seems crazy, doesn't it? Do you know what they'd done? They'd actually got ballerinas in to show the traffic where to go. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Who thinks of that? So things like that, you know, they do these beautiful, nobody's looking. You think, why would you do that? And I'm sitting in this roundabout looking at these, and they were changing around, different ones are doing it, but they're doing it with ballet. And there was another moment, I was in the top of the Coex Hotel in Seoul, and they'd just won the first game, the Koreans, and I was covering their game. And I looked down at the end of the night, and I looked down on the ground, and there was two and a half million people down there, all with the same hair and all with the same T-shirt. It looked like CGI. It didn't look like uh-huh. <laughs> I'm looking down going, I've got an early flight tomorrow. This is going to be chaos. And I got <laughs> up to the loo about three in the morning, looked out again. Yep, they're still there. <laughs> so I ended up getting up at five and I thought this is going to be carnage. Went downstairs, taxi's waiting for me. Nobody there. Place is spotless. Oh, they'd all gone. <laughs> they'd all gone. And taken their rubbish with them. And took the rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and you just think, I love this place. <laughs> I love this country. Oh, no, that's beautiful. I deeply, deeply fell in love that place. Myself. Well, that's a great story. And it's a fitting end, really, because throughout your seven pillars, we've really learned that you love new experiences. You love to travel, new people, new culture, new food, new music. And there's something very open-minded and refreshing about that. And that's what's made it really such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm a big football fan, but here we are. We've talked hardly about football at all. And I can only say, Pat, thank you very much for sharing your seven pillars. It's been a pleasure and I hope it all goes well for you. Thanks a lot, Pat.